Listener Production. Welcome to Real Crime Interview. I'm Adam Shand. The Afghanistan conflict is Australia's longest war. 26,000 men and women have served and 41 have lost their lives so far. For many veterans, the war goes on in post-traumatic stress disorders and other lingering physical and psychological effects. Now the actions of our soldiers in Afghanistan are being questioned by military inquiries and the media. Where once our soldiers were hailed as heroes, there are now accusations of alleged war crimes, torture, murder and trophy hunting, all part of a toxic so-called warrior culture. Against this backdrop, there is a mental health crisis in our defence forces. There are 400 known suicide cases among Australian Defence Force personnel going back to 2001. But the number has jumped alarmingly since 2020. In April, the Federal Government announced a Royal Commission into Veteran Suicide to understand the systemic issues behind the problem. Former ADF medic Dr Dan Mealy has his own story to tell. So tell me, I think you said to me your fifth generation army? Yeah, that's right. We've had a number of generations serving. My father was an infantry colonel um, for 37 years in the Defence Force. Where did he serve? Um, He served in Malaya and in Vietnam. He had quite a long tour in Vietnam. He got shot in the back in Malaya. Yeah, quite a a long career. And before that, we've had um, several aunts, uncles and great uncles who've served in both world wars. Right. The bravery of what we sent those guys to do and nurses as well, um, unthinkable things happened. And um, it is is sad to see that even today we haven't learned so much about trauma to the extent where people are still coming home from war with alcohol problems and drugs. But life is trauma though too. Let's not forget that either. I mean, and young men seek adventure. I mean, your own father, I mean, he was, uh, how did he end up in the services? Um, he came from a uh, family post-Great Depression, a large family with um, seven boys and a, and a daughter. Um, he always wanted to join the Defence Force from a very young age. Everyone else went off to university. But, yeah, he signed up at 18 and um, never looked back. Mm. But I think you're right. I think trauma is something that in is really affected everybody now. I think from 9-11, school shootings, um, the mosque shootings in New Zealand, the Port Arthur massacre, children blowing themselves up in a war zone. You cannot escape the trauma. And I think everybody is a bit traumatised. And I think how this has impacted upon society as a whole is that Everybody is sort of cutting off their empathy um, and as a protective mechanism. Uh, we could call it compassion fatigue or we couldn't call it a mechanism to protect in a mind. But ultimately what this has created is a lack of compassion towards those who are continuously putting themselves in, the, in harm's way to protect the rest of us, which is where... Well, there's kind of a dissonance, isn't there? Because I know during the period of the Afghanistan conflict, it's still going, of course, a lot of Australians said, why are we there, you know, and... Why are we sending so many troops? And obviously, obviously they, they kept it as small as possible and we sent the best of the best. You know, I guess they're the same as anybody else. That's exactly right. Two points on that. Firstly, we stopped reporting on what's actually happening in, in Afghanistan. I, I don't know about you, but I haven't really heard that much reporting in the last 10 years, really, about what's happening on a human rights level. Amnesty International reported in their report of last year 
that hospital was um, blown up by Taliban insurgents. Um, they murdered all of the healthcare professionals, all of the mothers, all of the babies, and that was last year. Who's heard that? Yeah, no one's heard that. I've not um, heard that. Yeah, exactly. And I think that why by not telling the story of what's happening in Afghanistan still, the empathy and sympathy towards soldiers who've been sent there to combat that kind of um, criminality, there's less sympathy for that because no one knows why we're there. Um, I was sent there and at the time I had no idea what we were doing there until, you know, dug deeper and worked out that um, the atrocities that were being taking place uh, in the hands of Taliban insurgents and then ISIS, certainly I think our involvement in those wars has created that kind of uprising. Um, but ultimately they're committing heinous crimes. They're executing schoolgirls for being educated. They're putting boys uh, into training camps and teaching them how to kill. They're strapping on suicide vests onto children who dressing up in suicide vests to blow up to be used as a weapon. These things are really causing harm to our soldiers who have been exposed to that on a day-to-day basis. And yet, what we're talking about is our servicemen drinking beer out of a prosthetic leg. Exactly. And I think that, look, it is uh, against uh, um, laws of armed conflict for somebody to souvenir a prosthetic leg from somebody who has been killed in action. It is a crime, but let's put things into perspective here. We send people into a war zone and we're sending, as you said, the best of the best, and they're being recycled with no time to rest and reset between their deployments. And we're sending them off again to war. Their families are separating from them because they can't deal with the separation of their dad and their husband. They're marrying you know, less complicated men. And these men are being sent with daily reminders, seeing other kids who are threats to them. They're the enemy to these guys. It has warped a a lot of these guys' sense of, I don't want to say morality. I think it's more warped their sense of um, psychological stability, some of them, um, when they're removed constantly from the normalcy of daily life in Australia and sent into hell itself and expected to cope without any kind of overarching help from their chain of command to the extent where if they come back from war and show the slightest crack of a psychological nature, particularly if they attempt suicide, it's treated and charged with a charge of prejudicial conduct and they're kicked out. What does that mean? Prejudicial conduct um, it essentially means it's a military charge where you put the defence force into disrepute or you put yourself into disrepute in relation to your actions and how that impacts upon your service. So the overall prestige and profile of the defence force. That's correct. It's, it's looked at so as you're a effectively form. weak. That's, that's right. That's right. And and soldiers need to be strong. They want to project an image of strength, a, cor- a corporate image, if you like. That's exactly right. And that's not how you build resilience. It's actually the weak man's version of um, resilience building. And what that actually does is, firstly, for those who do get uh, discharged on a medical psychological basis, they're discharged into a chaotic landscape where there's limited um, empathy for anybody who's traumatised and vulnerable within our community. Um, They're not receiving appropriate care, which is what the Royal Commission is all about. Um, But those who do stay in the Defence Force and mask their psychological demons, I mean, you don't have to be a brain surgeon to understand that when you suppress that kind of trauma just so that nobody detects what's happening in your mind, that erodes like lava the deeper structures of your personality and your inner moral compass. Mm. The message that the Chief of the Defence Force, Angus Campbell, has been sending to everyone in the Defence Force is do not show your cracks or we will punish you relentlessly. We'll kick you out of the Defence Force. And that has long-term implications for those who are kicked out along a production line into suicide. We need to go back up that production line to where those suicides are manufactured, which is the leadership of the Defence Force. 
Right. Wow. Wow. That's a, that's a lot to unpack there. Yeah. And I guess this is so entwined with your own story, isn't it? I mean, how you ended up in Afghanistan, what you saw, what you experienced, and how you've come back, and and how I guess you're trying to find purpose and clarity in your own life to move forward after what you experienced and you've seen others experience. So that vicarious trauma, and I think medics often experience that. Um, they, they do. Though. You're absolutely right. I think you can be a uh, trauma surgeon or you could be a nurse in a tertiary hospital in Australia and still experience the same kind of trauma. But I think what people don't often understand back home is that in a war zone, everything is chaotic. You know, I got there two years out of med school. Um, this is in 2014, 2015. I wasn't qualified to do that job. And yet you, if you leave and put your hand up and say, I can't do this, you get charged with um, going AWOL, which is a jailable offence. At the very least, a trauma surgeon was needed there with 15 years more experience than I had. I mean, the Defence Force's favour, I don't want to paint this unfairly, the Defence Force sent me there when there were 96 or so doctors, American doctors who uh, ran the Kabul base hospital, US Air Force Hospital, including a child cardiologist. They were very well um, qualified to take on a junior doctor, but you know, within a month, the Obama administration had extracted all of their health assets to support the growing ISIS campaign in Iraq, leaving me with with two general practitioners or American equivalent family practitioners, and that's it. And a couple so of nurses. from how many to how many? Ninety six doctors plus a uh, you know a couple of hundred nurses to two doctors, a junior doctor myself, and uh, maybe two nurses and a bunch of American combat medics with three thousand five hundred NATO forces. So, I mean, and, and in context, I stepped into Afghanistan when a commando by the name of Todd Chigi put a bullet through his brain, which had a domino effect in the mental stability of people who were already very traumatised and already quite vulnerable. And the response from the Defence Force to my frequent requests for a psychologist to come forward to deal with the ramifications of that suicide and the reasons why he attempted suicide in the first place. What happened to that soldier? Why did he do that? He was uh, talking to his family. I wasn't there at the time. This was uh, a week before I arrived in Kabul. He had been talking to his family happily on Skype. The two commando lines um, were you know, seven or eight bunk beds with a massive TV screen. In the middle, there was a very social room where they um, decompressed and laughed and got on with organising the next day's activities, which were quite traumatising what they were expected to be doing. But he was talking happily to his family and then he walked out of the room and there was a gunshot and he'd blown his brains out. So I, I think that what that demonstrates is that Nobody saw that coming. Um, nobody um, saw those cracks. And no note, no explanation? No, no explanation, no. Even his comrades, did they not have any inkling? Um, look, I didn't speak to all of them. Mm. Um, I spoke to a good dozen of them and they didn't see it coming and no one really wanted to talk about it. Because there but for the grace of God go I, I presume. Yeah, exactly. I mean, these were fantastic blokes, very brave guys who were going out on nightly kills to kill um, insurgents. There were a whole bunch of abnormal cultural aberrances that were going on in this defence force structure, which I really needed a very good organisational psychologist to come forward to help me work it out. Um, they did send a psychologist for a week who received his major pips while he was there and a sign-on bonus and he was dining with the chief every night and didn't actually see any of the patients I asked him to see. Subsequently, 18 months later, had a psychologist been sent into that war zone, a very good medic of mine by the name of Danny Martin, she attempted suicide in a big way, just metres from where Todd did. Had they sent a psychologist, that wouldn't have happened. 
there's a there's a culture within the defence force, um, sink or swim, throw you in the deep end to see if you survive. That's all well and good for a soldier who's very highly trained and um, has all the resources he needs to shoot or kill or whatever. But when you're a doctor, your job is to think of absolutely every single negative contingency that could take place. So my negativity was constantly being met with this toxic positivity from chain of command saying I'm being too negative, which is this ridiculous conversation that prevented oversight of what was happening on the ground. Mm. And you were seeing very traumatic things and dealing with them on a daily basis, I presume? Look, I would say daily basis. I think um, as we were winding down operations from previous engagements to uh, hand over to the Afghanistan government, we were receiving less casualties, but certainly there were quite a number of casualties that were really quite concerning. One being American soldier, older soldier who came in with an eviscerated bowel. His bowel was showing through his abdomen. His um, leg was half torn off. He was unconscious. The blood pressure readings were normal. His heart rate was normal. His oxygen saturations were normal. Everything was normal, which indicated immediately there was something wrong with the machinery, which comes back to the chaos of war. Nothing was working. Unfortunately, the Americans, when they left, didn't leave us with a well-stocked trauma bays or um, stock of emergency pharmaceuticals. A lot of the stuff was broken, and unfortunately that meant for this guy there was a a US anaesthetic nurse who was... um, driving this particular surgery and it involved um, an open clamshell thoracotomy and we were taking turns pumping his heart with our hands. Um, This is very traumatising stuff to know that there's actually nobody here to put him back together again if we locate the bleeding source in his thorax. So there were definitely very traumatising things that were taking place but I think that trauma the worst damage that trauma only takes place when you're not equipped with the resources and skills to do the job that you're there to do. And I was not resourced and equipped or skilled uh, with personnel or with um, clinical skill to be doing those sort of jobs. Mm. How did you end up there in the first place? When, when Dad left the army after 37 years in the army, he was 55 and he had three young kids under the age of 10. He didn't receive the superannuation payout that he was told he would receive. He got a pension, which only really supported himself. And in an ageist society, it took him two years to find employment. And we moved to a low socioeconomic suburb in Queensland, in Beanley, where my parents, particularly mother, my mother, wasn't very happy with the educational standards given that you know kids were reaching grade 12, illiterate, and she had a problem with that. And my uncle was the minister, Labor Minister of Education, and I think her conflict with the Labor government to improve education standards back then embarrassed the schools that we were at, which um, they expelled my sisters and I. So um, I ended up, mum bought books from Washington. So we used a syllabus from the United States and I taught myself school. I taught my little sister. And so by the time I reached age 18, I'd sat the US high school diploma exams and I did quite well, but I wasn't allowed to sit exams in Australia because I have a formal Australian grade seven education. So that meant I couldn't get a job packing shelf in a supermarket. So it was a big um, jump from that to medical school. So Well, you must have been some kind of teacher because you ended up getting into medical school, right? (laughs) I was pretty determined. Yeah, yeah, pretty (laughs) determined. Um, But I ended up going lifeguard job in Bahamas and then personal trainer job in Saudi Arabia for a prince. And I had had a lot of fun. (laughs) So it wasn't all hard work, but it took a good um, 15 years to get into med school. And so you do at a great medical school, Melbourne University, 
Yeah. Great school, you know, and you're expecting to become a GP or maybe specialise, start brushing up on the golf game, <laughs> think about the Mercedes Benz, right? That's the normal, that's the normal path, you know. I, I and to, what did you do? I wanted to join the army. I always have wanted to join the army, but again, I mean, I couldn't get in. Can I butt in though? But yeah. your father had been in Vietnam. Yeah. He'd been shot. The trauma that went with that. He came back. There wasn't enough money to go round and you wanted to join the army. Why? I, I used to sit behind the couch in Pakapanyu where dad was the area commander and uh, my mum used to tip him off to soldiers that weren't coping. She had a network of wives who would talk about their husband's issues and their kids' behavioural problems, etc. And my mum brought soldiers quite frequently to dad who would sit before the fireplace and work out their problems and I'd hide behind the couch and listen to these stories and I thought that's the defence force I was joining where, you know, the leaders would take a genuine love of their soldiers. I mean, they all called him dad. That's the defence force that I signed up for and unfortunately that's not the defence force that exists anymore. Mm. What's the path to get from medical school to ADF though? What happened? I did a biomedical science degree and then um, applied for the graduate medical scheme, which is a fully paid scholarship I did that at Melbourne Uni and then I did a year of internship in Melbourne and residency in Sydney and then I put on uniform and I was in Afghanistan. <laughs> I was told in my recruitment uh, sessions with the Defence Force that I could be an emergency physician and it turned out that they wouldn't let me do that. I had to be a general practitioner, which is not the skill set that I was good at. Mm-hmm. And I didn't receive uh, very um, ample training in general practice either before Afghanistan. I think... Um, you know, it, it was a reward to go there and I don't want to paint this as um, I was sent there under duress. Because you were, you were incredibly positive at the beginning. I, I was reading back in ADF PR material, this is the opportunity of my life, this is the best thing I've ever done, this is why I'm a doctor. So you were full of purpose at the beginning. What yeah. happened? Um, I um, was finding it hard to understand why my chain of command wasn't listening to my calls for a psychologist, surgeon, emergency physician, um, a radiologist, radiographer, um, nurses. I mean, I needed everything. And it's not that we were having that many rocket attacks and ground attacks or, you know, casualties. We were getting maybe one major casualty a week. But the problem is, is that if we had any more than one, we, we had no skilled resources to deal with that. We had a massive hospital with lots of wards, but there are nurses to look after them post-operatively. And if we were all hands on deck with one case, if we had another one that came in or another 100 or another 3,000, we had absolutely no capability to do that. And so I, as a junior doctor, not very much aware of the deficits in my skill set. That's what a good doctor does is you identify always your deficits. I asked my chain of command if I could apply for a training position at St. Vincent's Hospital the following year in emergency. And they were dragging their tail between their legs. They weren't giving me a definitive answer, but I was very mindful of the fact that I had professional obligations to make sure that if this happened again, I was appropriately skilled. So I applied for the job and I got it and I was waiting for permission to sign the contract for when I got home and everything snowballed. Everyone was going on holidays, Christmas holidays back home in Canberra. There was no one really to make a decision. And they mistakenly believed that I'd signed a contract when I hadn't. So I was dragged home like a criminal to face charges of prejudicial conduct for signing a contract, embarrassing the defence force by uh, entering into contract with another organisation, which I, I hadn't. And it took me a good six months before I would be told what my charges were. I was charged with in, in the end, disobeying a lawful command and then exited the Defence Force. And it took me four years to sue the Defence Force and um, be appropriately receive an apology letter for all of that. 
How does it sit with you today? Oh, look, I've had to let everything go now. I mean, I think um, one of the I great... I don't think you have. I <laughs> know <laughs> you haven't. <laughs> I, I, look, I think nobody can really put, put it in the past completely, but I think the onus now is, I think, is important for a lot of veterans to let go of all of the trauma and injustices and maybe understand that we might not get justice in our lifetime for a lot of the things that have happened at the consequence of very, very poor leadership. Why was it so poor? I mean, I think all of us questioned what the mission was in Afghanistan. Why are we sending soldiers to do that? Look, I think that the reporting back home of what was happening did not reflect what was actually happening there. And I think that's what it comes down to. I think that Australians weren't being told the enormity of the problem. And the problem pre-existed Australia's dates back uh, 100 years of, of warfare in the region. Everyone was fighting over this country as a strategic location. And what that did over time was destabilise their own government, destabilise even their religious influence. They lost touch with their Islamic religion completely. And it was all replaced with this chaotic, trauma fueled Sharia law nonsense that really was not reflective of their own religion, but was creating more and more trauma in the region, uh, murderous campaigns from the Taliban insurgents. And again, I think that we have to be honest that multiple years in warring in that location had driven that kind of response to our presence there. But certainly our presence there was needed to protect women and children and you know, men from the abomination of the Taliban insurgents. And we need to start talking about those issues again. But I can say that I will always stand by our soldiers and the American soldiers in particular who have done incredibly brave things, put themselves daily in harm's way. And I think just because we're not being told about those stories back home just because we're not putting them on a pedestal of heroism where they deserve to be doesn't mean that they're not heroes. They saw the atrocities of what Taliban was doing. I mean, they I don't think that there was any moral ambiguity at their level, the commandos I spoke with anyway, as to who they were killing and why. You know, they were sanctioned by the Australian government and the Afghanistan government to kill and to kill the Taliban, and they did their job really well. Um, I think it's only through a bizarre and sinister retrospectoscope that we're looking back at those kills now and analysing through a lens of... Uh, scrutiny without any contextual understanding of what that was oh, all yeah. about. It's gone from being something, as you described, what people felt was quite a righteous war. There was atrocities being committed to suddenly it was Colonel Kurtz up the river. Yeah, that's Apocalypse right. Now and all this lawlessness, war crimes, insanity really. But certainly our presence there has saved a lot of lives of little girls, little boys and children who um, have been used as pawns in this warfare. Hippocratic altruism is the promotion of another's self-interest at risk or cost to oneself. And it's at the core of all medical practice, tracing its roots right back to the Hippocratic Oath that all doctors sign. The soldier's lot is not to be a student of history or politics. Exactly. It's to follow orders exactly. and to trust the, the political leadership that sent them there. That's exactly right. What happens when you lose that trust? And I think that's what happened. You were the poster boy, at least in that story that I read, yeah. for the kind of oh, I feel good about this. You know, our soldiers are doing something worthwhile and here's a good example of someone who really feels his life is worthwhile. It's a challenging um, position to be in because I value the Defence Force. I would die for the Defence Force. We need it. We need a really good Defence Force that needs very good leadership. We need very good soldiers who are very well supported by the country who we pay by our taxes to protect our country and our national and international interests. 
it's very hard then to put on another cap of Hippocratic altruism where my support of veterans uh, or just serving members is conflicting against the chain of command who won't allow me to be that Hippocratic influence to advocate on their behalf inside the Defence Force or outside of it without quite significant brutal punishments as a consequence. In 2010, during his fifth tour of Afghanistan, Corporal Ben Robert Smith took part in an assault against an enemy fortification. Exposing his own position in order to draw fire away from his comrades, Robert Smith stormed two enemy machine gun posts and silenced them. For this action, Robert Smith was awarded a Victoria Cross. Now the ex-soldier finds himself under investigation for alleged war crimes. He's one of 19 special air service troops who could face prosecution for their actions in Afghanistan after an inquiry. None have been charged with any offences, and the investigation could take years to complete. The narrative on our troops has changed from heroism against the odds to accusations. Dan Mealy says Robert Smith VC is emblematic of how he and his comrades have been treated. Let's talk about the Victoria Cross. That seems to be a real moment in all this that is still playing out today. Um, the Victoria Cross is the highest award possible in our honours and awards system for a corporal, and Corporal Ben Robert Smith, he'd been only in the Defence Force for eight years, and actually to achieve a corporal by that time frame is testament to how good he was. That's quite a decent promotion chain, but he was a low-ranked soldier receiving the highest rank award, and I think that... Um, it created an imbalance of power in the defence force from an observational perspective. The officers and the soldiers, for that matter, there was a level of envy that was created surrounding that award, and he was right to leave the defence force upon receiving that award. I think that it would have created a lot of leadership issues because of the cultural aberrants that, that exist, the cultural mores. That Why are, the envy, though? Well, I mean, envy is a, an Australian trait, the tall poppy syndrome. I think they see Ben Robert Smith walking in in his Victoria Cross and they feel his inner angst, but they're not realising that this is their problem to deal with. It's not Ben's problem. And because they're not labelling it, it gives them permission to do whatever they like to Ben, to um, destroy his Victoria Cross, destroy Ben or destroy everything. And they have done that. And I think that we can't have a conversation about SASR or two commando soldiers or Ben Robert Smith and his VC without looking at toxic cultural attitudes such as envy, which is an Australian phenomenon. It's not just a Defence Force phenomenon. I'm not labelling this as a intrinsic to ADF. But I mean, I think a lot of men felt that little tinge like, oh, my God, look at this guy. He's tall, he's handsome, he's like <laughs> built like Chesty Bond and he's yeah. brave and he's got everything, you know. He went from being that person we all wanted to be or admire to suddenly, I mean, now the phrase is accused war criminal. Yeah, I know. And it's defamatory slogans that are bandied about with fluidity, which is really, it's really unfair. I mean, Ben is a, not only all of those things, tall, handsome, smart, um, he is actually a good man too. Um, let's not forget that when it came time to promoting a Royal Commission, there were very few high-ranked officers. In fact, I don't really know of any who came forward and said, we need a Royal Commission to investigate what's causing not only veteran suicide, but uh, rampant homelessness and mental health care admissions and domestic violence and addictions and compulsions. There's just so much that needs to be investigated in the Defence Force 
And Ben Robert Smith did come forward and he did push hard for a royal commission where nobody else did. So I think there's a level of goodness there as well as bravery that we need to start standing up for the guy and understanding that when we send people to do the worst possible things in a war zone, which is killing anyone, whether killing them politely or whether you're killing them with the lack of tact or whatever, Mm -hmm. it's the hardest possible job you can expect a soldier to do. And when you're not providing them the psychological supports when they come home, when you're actually punishing them and kicking them out of the defence force, adding them to the DVA trash pile of 323,916 veterans on DVA pensions, 323,916, and we only have 57,000 men and women in the defence force. We've got a big problem here. We haven't sent that many people to a war zone. We've got major problems that are driving people to leave the defence force with psychological problems that they did not have when they signed up. Certainly, um, we have to allow for the context to be discussed surrounding the ramifications of multiple deployments in horrific war zone circumstances with um, limited um, access to family for long periods of time. And the coverage, are we excusing the enemy and now blaming the people who were put in harm's way on our behalf. Absolutely. We have failed to tell the story of what's really happening in Afghanistan. I mean, Amnesty International is telling the story, but no one's actually in Australia telling that story for quite a number of years now of the ongoing atrocities that are taking place there. Our Prime Minister and our Chief of the Defence Force apologised to our enemies. And when I say enemy, I mean, I've lost friends in in the Afghanistan war, both there and home afterwards. Um, How many? I've lost uh, three friends, but others I have known subsequent to Afghanistan. I've intervened in their suicides, acting service soldiers, trying to put myself as a medium between them and the chief of the defence force and chief of staff, trying to advocate for them to allow them to keep their careers, to be kept in the protective environment of their uniform and their identity within the Defence Force, to receive compassionate therapy and compassionate leadership. And every single time that that hasn't worked, they've all been medically discharged and kicked out and handed over to the care of a DVA officer, desk job, which is not fair. This is um, not what they signed up for. We all signed up for um, a Defence Force organisation under the basic expectation that we'd be looked after when things went wrong. Yeah. Um, I mean, to be honest, we have we have no idea how many veterans exist. We know we've got about 641,000. I know that the Department of Veterans Affairs and our government have attempted to match service numbers, PM Keys numbers, with um, register of births, deaths and marriages. But really, we have no idea. So if you don't know how many veterans are, how can you possibly know how many suicides have taken place, how many homelessness there are, how many people have checked into mental health wards? We don't know. And I think anyone trying to pump out numbers is only using observed numbers of suicides of mums and dads putting up their hand and saying, me too. That's not the way to count suicides. The bottom line is that we're not looking at the problems. We haven't been counting anything. We don't know the extent of the problem. Look, I think that um, Defence Force, like any organisation in the world now, has corporate responsibilities that have to not only um, match other corporations and other institutions, they actually have to set the gold standard because mums and dads are handing their kids, and 18-year-olds are kids, they're handing them over to the Defence Force to turn them into soldiers to defend our country. I don't think there's anything more noble than that because, you know, I don't think many civilians understand that. You give up a lot of your civilian freedoms to put on that uniform and it's very hard to get them back. Um, you're not allowed to quit. But now they're not even supposed to be killers anymore and I use the, that's what they do. 
Yeah, exactly. I mean, they're trained and to kill. That, yeah, that's yeah. right. And, but now there's this new language around it that now the ADF's there to hand out flood relief and bushfires and so forth and we can transition them into that. But that's bullshit, isn't it? Look, I, I don't think um, in terms of creating employment. Yeah, it re- it's not real. It's, I mean, their real purpose is to go is to fight wars. That's exactly right. And if you're going to send them to bushfire assist to help with the bushfires, at least give them protective clothing to do so. I mean, we, we saw ample news feeds of volunteer firefighters decked out in all of the ModCon protective gear and our soldiers wearing their DCP uniforms with no protective gear whatsoever. We all saw it, but no one's really questioning, okay, why aren't they being treated with the I've same I've never questioned that you, uh, until you said it just now. In Australia in general, we tend to victim bash people who are screaming for help. You know, the homeless guy, don't give him money because he'll just spend it on drugs, right? Or you know, he just doesn't want to get a job. But we, we invent all this rhetoric in our heads surrounding people who are in genuine need. Um, and it really just comes down to um, our avoidance of helping them and creating a narrative to justify that. But mm. the same goes for veterans. We haven't wanted to um, really dig deep because the problems are so deep down and so big that this is going to require a national effort to fix because the problems aren't just intrinsic to the Defence Force or the Department of Veterans Affairs. There are cultural attitudes in this country that are causing a lot of people to kill themselves. For people to think about veterans in need, servicemen in need, is dissonant for most people. You know, they went to be soldiers. They were involved in killing, you know. Yeah. What did they expect was going to happen? Sort of yeah, almost exactly. attitude. Yeah, that, that's a very strong attitude that I've heard throughout my campaigning. And I think um, it just comes down to a lack of awareness on their behalf that nobody signs up to the Defence Force to be raped, for example. Nobody signs up to the Defence Force to be used in illegal drug trials like the Glasgow Smith Klein um, mefloquine and tofenaquine anti-malarial drug trials in East Timor that have caused countless suicides as well as mental health injuries and gas intestinal problems. Nobody signs up to the Defence Force to be used as slaves, which is essentially how a lot of them have been used. Mm. This is an unfair question. I'll ask it anyway. Okay. Knowing what you know now, if you had that choice back when you joined up, would you have still joined? Would you have still gone to Afghanistan? Uh, look, that, that's a very, very hard question because, um, you know, since Afghanistan, I've, I've had to stand up against the Defence Force as well as the medical profession. I've lost my medical career and my military career. I lost my mind for a bit there. I became homeless. I mean, I've been through a lot since I signed up for the Defence Force, but absolutely I would do it all over again. I think that our soldiers, sailors, airmen and women are worth it. Tell us about your own personal story. But as you say, it's been harrowing. It has, I think, harrowing because... Nobody wanted to hear what the problems were and I just kept persisting with them and it's not like I had access to media. I mean, I set up a human rights platform and when I sued the Defence Force and and won not very much money, but I used every cent of that to create four documentaries about veteran suicide. And man to, Down being one of them? Yeah, Man Down. Um, people have been particularly um, quite significantly unwell veterans have been really quite suspicious of my advocating and campaigning from day one. I haven't fought them back publicly or charged them with defamation or anything. I I think I feel sorry for them. But ultimately, it's taken an enormous hit to my career. Fortunately, I have some very solid allies who are helping me back to work. But um, for the interim, I just want to put a lot of that stuff to sleep so I can concentrate on myself for a while. Yeah, you should. You've been doing it for everybody else. <laughs> but you found yourself homeless at one stage. Well, tell us about that. What happened? Um, well, look, COVID had just hit. Um, I had my 82-year-old mum staying with me in Sydney and 
I mean, I've seen the bedlam that is created surrounding um, international stability, instability or national instability overseas. I've lived in quite a number of countries and I panicked and got mum to my little sister's place in Albury and I found myself at that stage pushing um, against the Prime Minister's campaign for a national commission instead of a royal commission. I won't go into details, but I became a whistleblower to some corruption that took place at a higher level of government um, surrounding the formation of the national commission, which had it been successful, it was not legislated to even look at past coroner's reports, where those coroner's reports simply read cause of death suicide. I had a big problem with that. Um, I think those coroner's reports are very important and the failure of those coroners to report the exact nature of what drove those suicides, I mean, some of which were murder, not suicides. And when you take into account the lack of psychological support, the overarching leadership failures, officers that did not look after their soldiers like my dad looked after his soldiers, throwing them out into a civilian landscape that treated them like they weren't tough enough for the job, being treated by Department of Veterans Affairs corporate responsibility wing of the defence force that thinks that giving their money is all that a human being needs. I had a big problem with that cause of death suicide in a coroner's report where really it should read cause of death checkmate because that's exactly what has happened for the vast majority of veterans have killed themselves. Have you contemplated it? Um, I, I have um, attempted suicide, yes. Why? Um... Last year, I had been um, homeless for much of the year and um, I just didn't see that there, were, there was no help for me. Um, I needed political help. I needed legal help. I needed other doctors to kick in and support me. I, I, I just didn't. I needed media help. I, um, I needed compassion and I just wasn't receiving that. Should have called me. <laughs> <laughs> Seriously. God, really? Oh, I'll call you every hey, night now, Adam. No, you should. <laughs> Didn't know what you voted there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so you got to that point where you just there was just nowhere else to turn. Ah, uh, that, that's right. I mean, I won't say that I gave it a good crack, but... I think um, I'm glad I survived. I'm glad I didn't go ahead to the full extent, but I know what it feels like to be pushed to that cliff face. This is a national emergency that we're living in, according to the Australian Bureau of Statistics and National Registry of Birth, Deaths and Marriages. We have a suicide um, every six hours in Australia. When you look at where we are militarily, we had the head of ASIO yesterday saying that he believes there's a terrorist attack going to happen within 12 months. I don't know whether he's just talking up his job there or that's a real thing. You know, these people need to remain relevant. But the certainty is that there's going to be more asymmetric conflicts around the world. We're going to be dragged in again. We are still remaining with America in all these things. So these problems have to be ironed out, don't they? Because there's another, there's another generation of people just like you who, who are about to cycle through. Absolutely. And we might not get time to rest and reset and analyse and scrutinise and have a Royal Commission. We might not have time for that. I mean, we could be hit with a major international catastrophe today. And so we need to start preparing now and not waiting for recommendations that may or may not ever be um, put into place. We need to be honest with ourselves as a nation and honest with ourselves as corporations and organisations and work out are we being loyal to the people in our country with our corporate responsibility profiles or are we doing damage to the people who are, we're supposed to be helping? 
Yeah. Do you feel like you're winning a bit or is the wind blowing with you now, do you think, a little bit? I'm studying very hard to get back into clinical practice and I'm being very well supported by a bunch of lawyers and doctors to achieve that. So I'm, I'm really excited, I think. I can see the light at the end of the tunnel. I think, I don't want to say I've done my bit towards um, Hippocratic altruism to veteran patients and demographics, but... Uh, Let me say that. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you, Adam. I, I, I think I do need to look after myself now. If this podcast has raised concerns for you, please get in touch with Lifeline on 13 11 14 or Beyond Blue on 1300 224 636. For more information on the Royal Commission into Defence and Veteran Suicide, please go to dva.gov.au. The producer was Sarah Grinberg. Mixing, editing and theme music by Matt Nikolic. Executive producer, Grant Tothill. Listener.